Welcome to The Buzz, the podcast of the Jazz Journalists Association, where we discuss news and views from those in the jazz media, writers, broadcasters, photographers, videographers, and other professionals documenting the entire ecosystem of jazz. I'm Rick Mitchell, and on today's episode, we're going to be continuing our conversation with veteran music critics Bill Mikowski and Howard Mandel on jazz criticism then and now. What Bill and I did not know is that Howard had left the record button on after the previous episode ended, so this episode gives you an idea of what jazz critics talk about when they don't know the tape is rolling, which turns out to be, among other things, rock and roll. One question for both of you. Name the first album that you bought with your own money. It's easy for me. Elvis Presley's Golden Decade. Wow. $2.89 maybe at Save on Drugstore. Had all of his early RCA hits. And I still have it. The cover's fallen apart, but I still have it. I was under the sway of my brother who was four years older, so I didn't have to buy albums. He introduced me to so much from Dwayne Eddy to the Rolling Stones. But the first one I bought with my own money was Are You Experienced? Jimi Hendrix. That was me separating myself from my brother who was in the Fats Domino and Chuck Berry and the coasters and different things. And I veered off with Jimi Hendrix. There there are two that come to mind. I don't know if I bought Herbie Mann's Live at the Village Gate. I think that may have been it. Or else, for some reason, Don... Friedman's Riverside album, Circle Waltz. Wow, that's very arcane. Well, for some reason, I like Bill Evans, and I came across that Circle Waltz cheap, and I thought that it was similar, and it, which it is, actually, and it's a good album. But then that makes me think I must have heard the Bill Evans earlier than that. Like, I, I think it was probably the Herbie Mann was probably the first. So, thing. Howard, you had no rock phase that you went through? Oh, yeah, were... I was listening to rock and roll. I just didn't necessarily buy those first. I was interested in jazz simultaneously with being interested in rock and roll. And I mm. I wasn't collecting rock and roll records particularly or soul records. Yeah, I mean, I, I bought Are You Experienced? Love and Spoonful we were into. I was into The Animals I was into. Butterfield Blues Band, you know, that stuff was around all the, it was around so much though, like we were listening to East West in our high school cafeteria, because Bloomfield had gone to Nutria, where I was, you know, graduated from. The first serious jazz album that I bought was Charles Lloyd, Forest Flower, after after I saw him in concert. Wow. Was Uh, that 67? 68. 68? Okay. I was in high school. However, my mom had this, you know, that Ellington era, the three LP Columbia box that had his late 20s and early 30s recordings. My mom had that. I later found out that she checked it out from the Anaheim Public Library and never returned it. Wow. But I can remember listening to East St. Louis Tootaloo when I was like in elementary school, I think. That was maybe my first real exposure to jazz. My parents had this record called Remember How Great. And it was a promotion from Lucky Strike Cigarettes. Remember how great yeah. cigarettes used to take? Well, Lucky still do is the, you know. The, wow. But anyway, they, it was like on one side opened up with Doris Day singing Sentimental Journey with the Les Brown Band, which I liked a lot. But then it ended with One O'Clock Jump by Basie, which that was oh, yeah. great. And also, I mean, I was into the theme from Peter Gunn. 
Uh, we went to course. hear a Mancini concert. My parents took me to a Mancini concert, and that was the climax, and that was the most exciting thing. I, you know, those trumpets blaring. And then I had a friend whose dad was into jazz. He gave me one of his albums that I said I liked. It was Miles in the Beginning. So it's the mm. quartet on Prestige with Philly Joe and Red Garland. That was great. I, that album, I think, nailed me. Yeah, I wanted to keep hearing that. I think next year is Mancini's Centennial. Yeah, yeah. And they're starting to do stuff now. But the, the TV theme of his that I think is underrated is Mr. Lucky with the organ in the background. Mm. I don't remember that. Ah, Mr. Lucky. Check it out. Will do. I, I was always involved with guitar. I, I was a guitar fanatic from the point of that Hendrix album, Zappa, Roy Buchanan, all that, Johnny Winter. And very quickly, I more—I don't even remember how I got this, but morphed into Joe Pass out of that. And that kind of took me in a whole different direction. Herb Ellis and all these other cats and Charlie Christian. But yeah, there was some bridge in there between Mahavishnu Orchestra and Joe Pass Virtuoso. Wow. I heard Hendrix when he came here, the auditorium and the, the tour, the soft machine opened. Mm. And that was fantastic. And also one of the earliest rock shows I saw, we walked in, Linda Ronstadt was singing different drummer. Then Tim Buckley did a whole set. And then Dr. John was the headliner. And wow. we love Dr. John. Me and my Charlie Doherty, you know him. I yeah, think. yeah. So, mm -hmm. so he and I were going to uh, clubs and stuff, and we saw that. And the place was empty, and I saw Charlie recently, and we were talking about it. He said, you know, the reason it was empty, the Aragon Ballroom, was because Crosby, Stills, and Nash were playing in town somewhere else. And you and I had to decide who to go see, and we decided Dr. John. So that was pretty cool. Schofield told me that when he was in high school, he would take the bus in from Wilton, Connecticut to see Tony Williams' lifetime at the joint on the Lower East Side. What was it called? Slugs? Yeah. And he said there was like six people in the audience. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that album was, that was a shake-up. Emergency, yeah. total shake-up. Yeah, yeah. That stuff was great. I mean, when I hear, we were big into the Mothers of Invention, too. I mean, I remember seeing a show at Ravinia that was The Association and the Mothers. Wow. And I also saw Cream and the Mothers. That was an intense show. I saw I The Mothers of Invention with Alice Cooper opening and this guy, Wild Man Fisher. Wild oh, yeah. Man Fisher. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that was when the Mothers had the horns and kind of the jazz guys in the band. That was at my college. I saw the Mothers in 73, the Overnight Sensation Tour, and Ma Vishnu opened for them. Yeah, I saw that tour. And and many people were like, what are these fucking fruitcakes with this guy with the double neck and the white? And they they <laughs> oh, just leveled man. the joint. Oh, they leveled the joint. Did you saw the Shakti tour, right? This yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. What he's a, uh, he's oh. getting better. Is that possible? Oh, my God. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, it, it came through Portland, but I it was a hundred bucks. I didn't go. Oh, it would I had a friend that went, so I just said it would it was worth every penny. It would, would have been worth it. It was so good. It was like he was playing live evil licks. It was really Shakti meets Mahavishnu in a way. Yeah. With the electric guitar and the arpeggiating and stuff. It was very up. He's right now in Europe touring with the fourth dimension band. 
This guy will never stop. I hope not. With all of this, though, that all of these other guitarists that we've talked about, Jimi Hendrix is still at the top of my list. I would have to say he he was just a genius. And uh, I saw him in 1970, the band with Billy Cox and Mitch Mitchell. It was in April and then he passed in September. So it was toward the end, but it was very mesmerizing. Saw him at a rock festival in L.A. that was a few months before Woodstock. And he came on in the middle of the night, just like at Woodstock. I was back in my sleeping bag, but I could hear it. Oh, that's an incredible set for a lot of reasons. I okay. saw Hendrix three times. And wow. Yeah, I saw him with on that tour with Soft Machine, and I was sitting in the very top row of the auditorium theater. And that was that was before Axis. <laughs> right. Probably 68. Yeah. That was like a mind-blowing show. Yeah. Then I saw him in Syracuse on the tour with Cat Mother and the All Night Newsboys. Oh, and he was just masterful. And I reviewed it for Downbeat, an experience set live from the West Coast from mm. Hollywood Bowl that they just released a couple months ago. Oh, right, right. So that show was done a week before the show I saw in Syracuse. Wow. It's the same set. And his guitar playing is extraordinary. It's just off the charts. He's doing stuff blues-wise that he's discovering as he's playing, you know, like any great, really great jazz guitarist does. I loved it. I just saw some footage of Buddy Guy, black and white footage from way back. And it's like, this is where Hendrix copped some of his stuff from. And he just hooked it up to a Marshall amp. And then the influence yeah. went back in the other direction, too, though, later. Speaking of uh, rock festivals at, back in the day, I went to the Midwest, Midwest Rock Festival at State Fair Park and saw Blind Faith. Johnny Winter also, but I remember being uh, blown away by Blind Faith. That was 69. Yeah, I saw Blind Faith. I think my experiences at that time, the best were the Ann Arbor Blues and Jazz Festival. John Sinclair was involved with that, right? Yes, at the beginning, yeah. But I think he got busted that first year or something. Uh, like one weekend, both Muddy and Wolf were booked on both nights. Wolf played the penultimate set on Friday night, and he went way overtime to stiff Muddy. And Muddy was furious and had to do a short set. So the next night, Muddy fixed it so that he would play the penultimate set and he was playing and playing and playing and wolf came onto the stage on a motorcycle <laughs> <laughs> i i read about that hilarious it's funny how these guys had a deep competition like man somebody had a real heavy competition with james brown back in the day they were trying to outdo each other on their sets no it wasn't rufus thomas but I'll have to think about who that was, but uh, yeah, the competition factor. <laughs> yeah, pretty good. But the, that festival, that Ann Arbor Blues and Jazz Festival, in one afternoon, it was totally Fred McDowell, Book of White. It was all the old guy, Roosevelt Sykes. Oh, man, it was like sitting at the Delta, steamy hot, and these guys were just reeling back the years. That was amazing. And then in the evening, it was T-Bone Walker and Luther Allison, or the Art Ensemble, or Charles Mingus. Or, or, or uh, Sun Ra. Sun Ra. Sinclair put out a CD of them from the Ann Arbor yep. Jazz and Blues Festival. Yep. I have that poster up in my in my hall. 
Wow. Yep, that stuff was that was great. Otis Rush. So Howard, you growing up in Chicago, you obviously saw the Butterfield Blues Band. What about Electric Flag or any of that stuff? I saw Bloomfield, but much later, I never saw Paul Butterfield. I was too young to get into the, uh, that band while they were here. We'd heard them on record, but I didn't. I would go to the live. Did set. you try to get into the checkerboard? No, I tried to get into the plug nickel. To see my, oh. I was not trying to get into the blues clubs at that time. I would go to the blues on the north side. So Alice is revisited on Lincoln Avenue, Kingston Mines. Mm. Mm-hmm. Kingston okay. Mines, yeah. That was I used to, Kemper who was just calling me the photographer. And, uh. and I used to go down to Teresa's a lot. And I Mark, was just going to say, I used to drive in from Milwaukee to go to Teresa's. And Mark spent a lot of time at Pepper's and at the Blix. Because he was going to University of Chicago. So it was, you know, just six blocks away. At one point, I was thinking about doing a book called Mayor Daly's Blues and Jazz. During Mayor Daly's reign, which was long, both the AACM and the Electric Blues came to fruition. And Sun Ra. Better than Harold Washington's reign. Musically speaking. Yeah. <laughs> well, Kempner told me once that he was a photographer and he wanted to photograph these people in the audience on stage. And he told me that he sort of ingratiated himself with the people by being a bartender for several weeks before he started photographing. I'll have to ask him. I've never heard him say that. Yeah. He hung out. He was like a bartender. He was one of the inside people before he ever took out a camera. And well, then they're not like much of a drinker. So that kind of surprises me, but you know, well, but he did it for the purpose of, getting on the inside to photograph them as a known quantity rather than an outsider. Ask him, unless I dream this, but I think he told me that once. I'll ask him. One thing he did was to offer musicians prints of what he took of them. Mm -hmm. So he would do that a lot. And he did really great work in the small clubs to get close to the audience. And and one thing he did, technically speaking, was to learn how to bounce lights off the ceiling and stuff like that so that he could light things in a much more, it looks much more natural, right? much less intrusive. Right. And that was something he was pretty devout about developing. Just growing up in Milwaukee, again, it's just down the road. I saw all those cats, Muddy and... Shaky Horton and all those Chicago guys, uh, Holland Wolf at clubs in Milwaukee. So I was happy that I grew up there. It wasn't Chicago, but it was just down the road. Yeah. Growing up in California, born in the Bay Area, but went to high school and college in Southern California. The Bill Graham concerts, he would put a Charles Lloyd on in front of Steve Miller band, plus blues guy Albert King on in front of Country Joe and the Fish, that that was very mind-expanding for me and I'm sure a lot of other people of, of that generation. The first clubs that I could get into when I was not yet 21, and I think they were 21 and over, were Concerts by the Sea and the Lighthouse, which mm. were still working. I saw Freddie Hubbard. I saw the Jazz Crusaders. Can't remember everybody. Saw Johnny Guitar Watson one time. He was too high to play <laughs> but yeah you know it was all right I, I moved to portland in 1974 
and then moved back here in 87 after being gone for 30 years in Texas. Just speaking about being too high to play. Yeah. In 1972, I saw the Pure Food and Drug Act with Sugarcane Harris. Yeah. He fell off the stage while playing a solo, violin solo. The crowd caught him and passed him around the room <laughs> and returned him to the stage without breaking a note on his solo. <laughs> Perfect. This was before stage diving or any of that shit. He just like fell out and was soloing. Crowd passed him around. <laughs> I certainly saw band sets that were they were too high to play. I saw the worst Jefferson Airplane set. They hated each other. It was clear they were talking to each other, much less playing, but they were all... I mean, I saw them do a good show, too, but I, that was, like, horrible. I think on that same night, John Sebastian, they had to carry him on stage. Oh, no. He was playing solo. Wow. I don't remember his performance being very stellar, either. I remember this one gig. It was the Chicago Jazz Festival. I'd have to think about the year, but it was Betty Carter. It rained really hard, and the audience was getting drenched. And at some point, she's like, in mid-note, she says, you people must need this music. <laughs> right. I remember sitting there. We were right there in Grant Park under coats, you know, strung up over us. And uh, and she was very hard on her band. I, I remember that same set. Was it Curtis Lundy? I can't remember who was the bass player, but in the middle of Moonlight in Vermont, a tender ballad, she's holding the high note, you know, and then she turns to the bass player, you're flat. <laughs> and then goes back to the next note and on mic of course Ooh, lovely <laughs> and sugarcane harris i know he was with john mayall right was he ever briefly a member of the mothers of invention he played on some zappa records on oh, hot yeah. rats uh willie the pimp and that's what i'm thinking yeah yeah he's on those records but he and harvey mandel formed that group pure food and drug act which was pretty cool, like 72, 73. That's about it. Is Harvey Mandel still alive? He is. I just did an interview with him. He's got a new album out. Cristo Redentor, the Donald Oh, Burke. yeah. Yeah. That record came out in 68, the same time as Jeff Beck's first album, Truth. And it got so overshadowed by that, that it yeah. was way under the radar. It was overlooked. But what a great and forward-thinking record that is. If you listen to it now, it sound completely modern to you. Does Harvey Mandel live in Milwaukee? No, he's in Florida. He was in Chicago, and then he moved to Florida. I don't think he ever lived in Milwaukee. He Melvin Ryan lived in Milwaukee toward the end. Sure. Richard Davis? No, he was in Madison. I wanted to ask you one question, though, Rick. When were you in Texas? What years? 1989 through oh, okay. 2017. Okay. I sold a guitar to Billy Gibbons, and I went down to Houston. It was a 1928 National Steel Triolian that I bought at a farmer's market in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, for like $20. When I interviewed him, I mentioned I had this, and of course, he's got a gigantic collection, and he was interested. He's like, wow, if you ever want to sell it, come on down. So he flew me down to Houston. And I hung out with him. I sold him this guitar. He turned me on to musicians I never heard about, like Bongo Joe, who was a New Orleans guy. He gave me a tape of him. But he told me about a slide player named Little Jimmy One Hand. Did you ever hear this cat? No. He's, he's like, yeah, this cat, he's got one arm and he plays slide with a brick. 
<laughs> I wanted to see if that was myth or real. So that was probably before you moved there. Did you ever hear little Joe Washington? He was from that same no. gener- same generation of Albert Collins and Johnny Copeland and Joe Guitar Hughes, but he was crazy. He was maybe five feet tall, and you know he was doing somersaults on the stage, and you know, oh, like Guitar Shorty. Yeah, he was basically homeless. He used to come down the radio station KPFT. Sometimes he would just sleep in the lobby there. But he did. He did a, finally got a few albums out after the, the 2008 hurricane Ike, which was pretty serious. A lot of trees down and roofs ripped off and yeah, he did a, an album dedicated kind of dedicated to that you might if you're ever digging deep into texas blues check him out little joe washington did and, you uh, know a guy named johnny g from houston no a singer like a james brown kind of guy no i didn't hmm. i was the music critic at the chronicle from 89 to 99 and then i left i, I became a teacher but i got offered to be the music stage curator for the Houston International Festival. And then they made me an offer. I couldn't refuse to be the artistic director, making quite a bit more money than I could make teaching. Billy Gibbons used to come down and hang out, by the way. He's a fan of African guitarists. He'd be back oh, yeah. backstage with View Farcatore and that kind of stuff. Mm. Have either of you been to, well, Rick, you obviously have, South by Southwest? I covered it every year from almost from the beginning. Yeah. And after I left the newspaper, I would still go over there, sometimes on a freelance writer capacity and other times sort of on my artistic director, music curator role for the International Festival to check out groups. So, yeah, I, I've probably been to South by Southwest two dozen times, maybe, but I haven't been since I left Texas, which was 2017. From what everybody says, it's just so, it's gotten larger than it ever should have become. I remember the first year when it was still a localized thing, you know, and it became a such a phenomenon. I guess you could say the same for the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. It started out very localized, and now it's not even jazz anymore. Well, you, you still got the smaller stages. Last time I was at Jazz Fest was 2014. Springsteen was the headliner, and he was great. But I was there the day before that, the Friday, when it wasn't so crowded that you couldn't even move. And I saw Pharaoh, and I saw this blues guy, Charles Bradley, who was terrific. Lots of good stuff. I would go to Jazz Fest again under the right circumstances, I think. South by Southwest, yeah, in the beginning, it was all in one hotel. A lot of local artists. I remember being outside the back of the hotel. My wife was like eight months pregnant with her stomach sticking out and i'm out there playing half court basketball with these guys and my wife goes who were those guys and i'm like they're in a band called black flag <laughs> <laughs> wow great great gin or gin whatever and henry rollins yeah on the basketball court when i was a dj at wwz in 93 to 96 ernie cato had an afternoon show on the air I used to see him all the time. I listened to his show. I taped a few of his shows off the radio. New Orleans has changed a lot. I'm I'm not sure about Austin. I'm sure, I guess, Austin is the new place for high tech. Isn't that where Tesla Boy has his property now, his yeah. plant? It's changed. It was a little more bohemian back in the day. Yeah. it's it's Now it's got a billionaire's kind of club mentality. And the... Uh, Working musicians are have to live 30 minutes outside of town, and it's it's not so good. 
Bill, my wife is going to be impressed when I tell her you were on WWOZ <laughs> and, and that you knew DJ Davis. I just wrote a piece for my blog about John Sinclair, who turned 82, and I met him through OZ because he had a show and I had a show. He called up one night as an anonymous caller. We started talking and I got to know him really good. I knew him quite well before I knew anything about his past. He was just a cat who had a very hip show on the radio. And then I found out about the White Panther Party and the Ann Arbor Festival and MC5 and all that. Man, that was a rich time for me doing that overnight. The Milkman's Matinee from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Were you single when you did that? No. Your wife was okay with that? I got to yes. get out of bed and go do my show. <laughs> yes. Okay. I I had a 64 Plymouth Fury with a snake on the hood at the time, and I would drive to the gig late at night. And my voice, I was fashioning it after the Tom Waits character on Down by Law. If you remember that movie with John Lurie, they're in jail together and they're talking about who, who they are. And he's like, Waits says, oh, yeah, I used to be a DJ. I was... I was Lee Baby Sims, and he goes into his DJ voice. This is Lee Baby Sims here in the 90.7 FM, WWOZ in the Crescent City. <laughs> I uh, totally copped his voice for my radio persona, the and Milkman. Were you, were you playing mostly New Orleans music, or were you playing all no, 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 no. No, I had like from three to four was the Monk Hour, but it, it was never Thelonious. It was interpretations of his music by a whole range of artists who covered Monk tunes. And that's when Sinclair called in one night and he's like, Milkman, I like the Monk hour. (laughs) Soon after I was smoking a joint with him. And then soon after that, I was finding out who he was. And he's still around. He's 82 now. Good. We need him. Yeah. Bring back the White Panthers. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to The Buzz, a podcast produced by the Jazz Journalists Association. We release new episodes monthly on all the major platforms. To learn more about us, please go to jjanews.org. This episode was edited by Wiz Petta. The John Michaels composition Big Vic is our theme music. I'm Rick Mitchell. Peace.